revolt, not therapy. When the situationist idea that revolution would be therapeutic found its way into the English language, it opened a Pandora's box of misunderstanding. It seems clear to me that the situationists were pointing out that a real revolutionary rupture would break down the social constraints which underlie so much of what is considered mental illness and emotional disturbance, freeing people to discover their own meanings and methods of thinking and feeling. But many have understood this concept differently, taking it to mean that revolution is to be something like an encounter group, a counseling session, or a psychological self-help activity. Ceaseless self-examination, embarrassing confessionalism, the gamut of support groups, safe spaces, and the like, come to be understood as revolutionary activity. And many so-called revolutionaries, in conformity to such a practice, tend to become the emotionally crippled neurotics that they assume they are, searching for a revolutionary healing that will never come, because this assumed role is inherently self-perpetuating and thus perpetuates the society that produces it. What is missing from this therapeutic conception of revolution is revolt. The destruction of the social order with the aim of liberating ourselves from all domination and exploitation, from every constraint on the full development of our singularity, certainly requires an analysis of how our lives, our passions, our desires and dreams have been alienated from us, how our minds have been constrained to reason in certain ways, how we have been trained to follow the logic of submission. But such an analysis must be a social analysis, not a psychoanalysis. It must be an examination of the social institutions, roles, and relationships that shape the conditions under which we are forced to exist. Consider this analogy. If a person has broken her leg, of course she must try to set it, get a cast or splint, and find a crutch. But if the reason why she is having trouble walking is that someone has put a ball and chain on her leg, then her first priority is to cut the chain off, and then to destroy the source of the chain to guarantee that it won't happen again. By accepting the idea, heavily promoted by progressive education and publicity, that the structures of oppression are essentially mindsets inside ourselves, we become focused on our presumed weakness, and how crippled we supposedly are. Our time is eaten up by attempts at self-healing that never come to an end, because we have become so focused on ourselves and our inability to walk that we fail to notice the chain in our leg. This endless cycle of self-analysis is not only tedious and self-indulgent, it is also utterly useless for creating a revolutionary project, because it gets in the way of social analysis, and it transforms us into less capable individuals. The therapeutic approach to social oppression ends up focusing on a myriad of isms with which we are infected. Racism, sexism, classism, statism, authoritarianism, ableism, ageism, etc., etc. No kidding. Because the first two give very real and clear expression of the difference between psychoanalysis and social analysis, between the approach of therapy and that of revolt, I will examine them briefly. Viewing racism and sexism as essentially unconscious mindsets and the behavior these produce, the nature of which we are not always aware, we are drawn onto a practice of constant self-examination, constant self-doubt, which effectively disables us, particularly in our ability to interact with the other. Racism and sexism become something nebulous, a pervasive virus which infects everyone. If one has the bad fortune of being white and male, even if one consciously rejects all the social constraints and definitions behind such labels, then he is required to accept the judgment of non-whites, oh, excuse me, quote non-whites, <clears throat> and quote females. 
about the significance and the, quote, real unconscious motivations of his actions. To do otherwise would constitute arrogance, a lack of consideration, and an exercise of, quote, privilege. <laughs> the only outcome I can see from such a way of dealing with these matters, and it is certainly the only outcome I have ever seen, is the creation of a bunch of shy yet inquisitorial mice tiptoeing around each other for fear of being judged, and just as incapable of attacking the foundations of the society as they are of relating to each other. If, on the other hand, we view racism and sexism as expressions of the social ideological constructs of race and gender, which have specific institutional foundations, a very different approach applies. The, the concept of race, as it is currently understood here in North America, has its origins in the institutions of black slavery, slavery and the genocide against the indigenous people of this continent. Once established by these institutions, it became rooted into all of the power structures on one level or another, due to its usefulness to the ruling class, and was trickled down to the exploited classes as a means of separating them and keeping them fighting among themselves. Sexism has its origins in the institutions of property, marriage, and the family. It is here that patriarchy and male dominance have their seat. Within this framework, gender is created as a social construct, and as with race, it is the continuing usefulness of this construct to the ruling class that has kept it in its place in spite of the increasingly obvious absurdity of the institutions that are its basis. Thus, the destruction of racism and sexism must start with the explicitly revolutionary project of destroying the institutional frameworks, which are the current basis for the constructs of race and gender. Such a project is not one of therapy, but of revolt. It will neither be accomplished by shy, tiptoeing mice, nor, nor by inquisitioners, but by self-confident, indomitable rebels. I won't go into the absurdity of such terms as classism or statism here, because that is not my purpose. My purpose is to point out that the revolutionary struggle may indeed have the therapeutic effect on, of breaking down social constraints and thus opening the mind to new ways of thinking and feeling that make one more intelligent and passionate. This is precisely because it is not therapy, which focuses on one's weakness, but a self-determined project of revolt springing from one's strength. Freedom belongs to the individual. This is a basic anarchist principle, and as such resides in individual responsibility to oneself and in free association with others. Thus, there can be no obligations, no debts, only choices of how to act. The therapeutic approach to social problems is very opposite of this. Basing itself in the idea that we are crippled rather than chained, inherently weak rather than held down, it imposes an obligatory interdependence, a mutuality of incapacity, rather than a sharing of strengths and capabilities. In this, it parallels the official way of dealing with these problems. With these problems. And no wonder, it is the nature of weakness to submit. If we all assume our own weakness, our perpetual internal infection by these various social diseases, then we will continue to nurture a submissive way of interacting with the world, ever ready to admit guilt, to apologize, to back down from what we've said or done. This is the very opposite of responsibility, which acts consciously with the assurance of one's projectual approach to life, ready to take the consequences of one's choices, the outlaw worthy of her transgressions. In the face of 10,000 years of institutional oppression, 10,000 years in which a ruling class and the structures that support its power have determined our conditions of our existence, what we need is not therapy, but strong-willed revolt aimed at developing a revolutionary project that can destroy the society and its institutions.